Chapter 50 of The Grey Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeremiah Sutherland, Victoria, British Columbia. The Grey Man by S. R. Crockett. Chapter 50 The Last of the Grey Man. It was the morn of the execution. Justice, delayed for so long, was that day to let fall its sword. We of the Cassillis colors mustered in the dead of night, for there was no force save the city guard within the walls. And we had recently had overly many proofs how little these men could do with the unruly commons of Edinburgh if it pleased them to be turbulent. So it had come to be bruited abroad that there was an intent to prevent the execution and deliver the murderers out of the hands of justice. But we were resolved that this should not be. So, as was our bounden duty, we armed us to support the right and to keep the king's peace against all riotous lawbreakers. The earl gave to me the command of one half of the band, reserving the other for himself, and already he called me Sir Launcelot, though I had not yet received the acknowledgment of knighthood from the king. At the first break of day it was to be done. Of this we had private notice from the turnkey of the tollbooth. I had worked earnestly upon my mother and Nell that they should abide from the business, which was indeed not for womankind to see. Though I knew that there would be many there, aye, even dames gentle of degree. But my father marched with me. Shall I put my harness off me, said he, when there is a chance of a tumult, and of the defeating of the solemn justice of Providence and of King James? God forbid! Wife, help me on with my jack. So I placed my father in my own command, and I set him in the second rank with Hugh of Kirrymore beside him and Robert Harburg in front of him, where I judged he would not come to any great harm. And we Kennedys had the king's private permission thus to come through the town under arms. When we arrived at the place, the tall scaffold had already been set up at the cross, and even ere we arrayed us first about it, many a candle had begun to wink here and there in the tall windows of the high street. The earl was to command a second strong guard from the prison port to the scaffold, lest the rabble should try to overwhelm the city guard and the marshal's men as they convoyed the prisoners to the place of execution. Thus we of the first band stood grimly to our arms a long time after the gloaming of the morning began. The hum of the folk gathering surrounded us. There was, however, little pleasance or laughing, as there is at an ordinary heading or hanging, and that did not betoken good, for when the populace is silent, it is plodding. This much I had learned in my long service, and afterwards as a knight-at-arms. Therefore I hold it the true wisdom to strike ear the many-headed can bite. That at least is my thought of it. Slowly and slowly three or four dark figures on the scaffold grew clearer to our eyes, till we could see the headsman and his assistants waiting patiently for their work to be brought to them. The chief of these was a mighty man of his arms. He had a black mask upon his face, and was naked even to the waist. A leathern apron like a smith's was done about his loins, and he stood leaning his broad axe upon the block. The sun was just beginning to redden the clouds in the east, when the door of the tollbooth fell open with a loud noise. At the very same moment the rooks and jackdaws arose in a perfect cloud from the pinnacles of St. Giles as well as from the whole city, and in a black clanging cloud they drifted seaward, which was looked upon as a marvel by them that watched for frights for they said, These be John Muir's devils that have forsaken him. And indeed, whether there was aught in it or no, certain is it that the birds came not back for many days. At least not to my seeing, but then I was much occupied with other matters. 
As the procession came out, the Earl John and his men filed on either side in a triple line, with the axemen of the guard marching close about the prisoners. John Muir walked first in his grey cloak, but bareheaded, striding reverend and strong before all. Behind him came his son, and hand in hand with him, O oh marvel of marvels, was she that had been in name his wife, even Marjorie Kennedy. And as they came the light grew clearer. There seemed to be almost a smile upon the Lady Marjorie's face, and James Muir listened intently as she spoke low and steadily to him. For Marjorie had in these days become, as it seemed, a woman removed from us, supported by no earthly food. For none touched her lips, her strength being upheld by some power from above, at least so I think. She had received permission from the king to be with her husband in his last hours. I have fulfilled the Lord's justice, for my duty was laid upon me, she said, but I would not kill both body and soul. How she effected it I know not, but certain it is that during the weeks of waiting she had won James Muir in some sort to contrition and prayer, and now with his hand in hers they walked together along the short way to the scaffold foot. But old John Muir strode scornfully on before, heedful neither of man nor woman and I swear that I could not but in some measure admire at him, devil of cruelty as he was. They climbed the scaffold, John Muir calmly as though he were leading a lady to a banquet table, but his son faltered and had fallen at the latter foot, save for the hand of Marjorie, who walked in white by his side, accompanying him faithfully to his end. I am his wife, she said. It was I who brought him to this. Ye will not twain me from him on this day of shame, Never have I owned James Muir as my husband before, but I own him now. These were her words when the captain of the guard was instant with her to depart home. And I declare that the doomed man looked at her with something like a beast's dumb gratitude in his eyes, which, when you think on it, is a thing marvellous enough. And I ask not that it shall be believed. Yet I saw it, and will at any time uphold the truth of it with my sword, if need be. At last they stood upon the scaffold platform, and the headsman made ready. Then there sounded above the mingled roar of the multitude the blowing of a trumpet, and the king's gay favorite, the Duke of Lennox, rode to the foot of the stage. He had a paper in his hand. A pardon, a pardon, yelled the people. My heart gave a great leap and stood still. They never dare, cried I. Lads, stand firm. If the king hath pardoned the murderers, shall we of the west? Will ye follow me, lads? and they whispered back, Ay, that we will. We will help you to do justice upon them. The Muirs shall never leave this place alive, though we all die also. We shall not go back to Carrick, shamed by these men's lives. So we arranged it, if by any chance there should be news of a reprieve. For it was by singular good hap that we were the only company under arms in the city, save the few men of the town guard. But when Lennox made his way to the scaffold, we heard another way of it. I was almost underneath the staging upon the front, and heard that which was said, almost every word. The king to you traitors about to die, he read. His majesty desires greatly to be informed of the certainty of these things whereof you have been accused, and for which you have been justly condemned. The murder of Sir Thomas Kennedy, the matter of the bloody dagger thrown at the Red House, the treasure of Kelwood, and its taking out of the change house on the Red Moss. His Majesty the King offers life and his clemency in a perpetual exile upon some warded isle, to the first of you that will reveal the whole matter. The King's favourite ceased his reading, and looked at the condemned men. 
and John Muir in his plain grey cloak, which he had not yet laid aside, looked askance at Lennox, who shone like a butterfly in gay colours, being tricked out in the latest fitful extravagancies of fashion. "'We shall be grateful to His Majesty all our lives,' said he sneeringly. "'But the Solomon of Scotland is so wise that he can easily certify himself of the truth of these things without our poor aid.' But James Muir the Younger, where he stood with his wife by his side, seemed a little struck with the message, and began to listen with interest. "'Read that again,' he said to Lennox abruptly. And Lennox, prinking and preening him like a gay-feathered Indian bird in my lady's bower, read the king's mandate over again. John Muir watched his son with the eye of a crouching wild cat. The younger man was about to utter something, when his father said quickly to Lennox, I pray thee, my lord duke, may I speak with you a moment apart? I am the first to accept the offer. And with that they came both of them to the side of the scaffold where I was on guard, leaving James Muir standing with drooping head by the block. Hark ye, my lord, said Auchendrayne the elder, thy master's terms are fair enough to be offered to a dying man on the scaffold. I will take them. But on condition that my son be executed before I reveal the secret. For there are but two of us left, and we have been close to one another all our lives. I would not therefore have my son think that I, being an old man, for the sake of a year or two longer life, would reveal these matters for which he has already suffered the torture of the extreme question, with so great constancy both in the king's inquest chamber and before the lords of secret council. That is easily arranged, said Lennox, dusting at his doublet. I have but to give the word to the executioner, and he will do his duty first upon your son, then he will halt till you have accepted the king's mercy, and given pledge and earnest of full revelations concerning these hidden and mysterious matters. This was Lennox's customary manner of speaking, as he had learned it in the English court, with womanish conceits and a flood of words and gestures. And as he spoke he smiled upon John Muir, as though the old grey man in the cloak and reverend beard had been some young and easy-virtued dame of the court. And so taken up with himself was he, that he did not observe the basilisk look which the arch-conspirator turned upon him. Lennox held up his hand to the executioner. In the king's name, he cried to the man in the mask, Do thine office upon the younger first, and speedily. These are not my orders, quoth he in the mask, curtly. Lennox flashed a little ebon staff, with a golden crown set upon the summit before his eyes. Wouldst thou argy-bargy with me, he said, then right soon another shall take thy bishopric and, as thou dost others, shall shepherd thee to Hades. Whereat Marjorie, robed in her clear shining white, took the hand of James Muir, the man that was about to die. Husband, said she calmly, I have asked pardon for thee from God. Do thou also ask it now, ere swift death take thee. Ask it both from God and man. For she had been his ministrant angel in the prison, and, her own heart being changed, vengeance in the drinking not seeming so sweet a cup as it had appeared in the mixing, she had also won the sullen mechanic heart of him, who, according to the law of the land, had been so long her husband. She had showed him the way to a certain sum of faith, penitence, and hope, which perchance he snatched at, not so much for themselves, but as the best things which were left to him. James, when thou forth on thy way, fear not, Thou shalt not be long alone, she said to him. And staggering a little, he moved across the scaffold. He would have fallen, but that Marjorie set his hand upon her shoulder and put her arm about him. So he came forward stumbling like a man in sore sickness, as doubtless he was. 
I am a sinful man, he said, so that some at least could hear him. Pray for me, good people. Keep your hands from blood, as I have not kept mine. And Marjorie, though thou didst never love me, love me now, and bide with me till I die. Fear not, she said. I will stand beside thee, and not only here. I have a message that I shall right soon be called to journey with thee further, meeting thee somewhere by the way that thou must go. And calling him again sweet brother and James, she laid down his neck upon the block, and with one blow the headsman featly did his office. But Marjorie stood still and received the poor head in a decent napkin after the masked man had held it up. John Muir looked at her and at her son all the time, and an evil and contemptuous light shone in his eyes. Madam, he said, it had done no harm had you begun your care and attendance somewhat earlier. Ye might have made a decent preacher out of James. He was never muckle worth for aught else. Then Lennox came forward again with his paper. Now, John Muir, he said, we have done according to your desire. Ye will now, I doubt not, having seen the end and reward of iniquity in the person of your son, accept his majesty's so marvellous clemency, and be content to reveal all the matter. He came a little near to the old man, airily whisking his paper with his forefinger. John Muir waved him aside with one hand, and held his nose with the other. Pah! Get apart from me, civet cat, he cried. Think ye that I will have any dealings with you, or with your dullard fool master, King Baggy Breeches? I saw that ye might, perchance, where I first turned to dead clay and lappered blood, chance to get something out of James there. I saw him look somewhat too eagerly on your reprieve, for much belated domesticity had turned him soft. So I played with you. And now, wot ye well, ye shall know nothing from me that your precious Solomon of Asses cannot divine for himself. He took off his cloak of grey and lace collar, burying his neck for the dead stroke. Stay, he said to Lennox, since your wise king is so curious. Here is a history of diverse matters that may interest your master. It may do him some good. The new minister of Edinburgh, a soft-spoken, king-fearing man, came near. John Muir looked at him. Of what religion art thou? he asked. Ay, verily, of the king's religion. Were my time not so circumscribed, I would have at thee with texts, thou time-serving rogue. Ay, and would swing thee with them soundly, too. In what religion dost thou die? said the minister. For it was a customary question in those days, when men were forced to live and die on the borderland of many creeds. John Muir smiled as he bent his head to the block. Of the ancientest persuasion, said he, for I am ready to believe in any well-disposed God whom I may chance to meet in my pilgriming. But in none will I believe till I do meet him. Nevertheless do thou, like a wise, silly bishop, stick to the king and thy printed book. Which saying was remembered when the minister was afterward made a bishop by the king's favor. With these words John Muir threw out his hands with a sharp jerk, for that was the customary signal. The broad axe rose and fell, flashing in the sun a moment ere it crashed dully upon the block. The Westland men gave a shout, and the heathen spirit of John Muir of Auchendrain, carrying such a load of sin and bloodshedding as never soul did before or since, fared forth alone to its own place. End of chapter 50